So uh, I'd like to open up tonight with uh, quite a bit of quite a bit of vulnerability. I know that some of you guys uh, have heard this story before, but uh, it is uh, pretty timeless. Shame to admit it, but it did happen a few years ago. Uh, I was on my way here uh, very early in the morning. I'm an early riser. Uh, Joshua has inspired me a lot, and. Um, so I was on my way here, and, um, and all of a sudden in my rearview mirror, uh, driving through some of the streets of St. Charles, I noticed that there were some um, flashing red and blue lights. And when I say early in the morning, it's, it's about 3.45, and, um, and so I, I was trying to think through all the possible reasons why I would be being uh, pulled over at that junction. I couldn't think of any. And uh, so the, uh, the officer, I uh, was very kind and friendly, came up, hey, sir, just doing a routine uh, check here. It's early in the morning. Where are you headed? And I said, I'm headed to work. And he said, where do you work? And I said, I'm a pastor. And he said, why are you going in so early? And I said, the early bird gets the word, brother, you know. And, and, uh, <laughs> and so um, he's like, hey, look, I, I just, I understand. No worries. Just making sure, you know, no one's out uh, gallivanting around the city at this wee hour of the morning. So he takes my, uh, my license, and uh, pretty good mugshot on my license, too, so I was happy to hand that over, and he comes back a couple minutes later, and he comes up, he comes up to the door, and, and you guys know the routine uh, you're expecting to hear, especially after our very encouraging first conversation. Uh, you're expecting to hear something like, sir, listen, uh, no worries, you know, everything's all good, have a great day at work, you know, on your way you go. And instead, he comes back uh, to my door and he says, um, Mark, would you mind getting out of the car? And, uh, and, and, you know, so my first thought is, oh, he, he wants to have a, you know, more in-depth conversation. Maybe, maybe he's interested in the gospel, right? And so he heard I'm a pastor, and so he's going to ask me about Jesus. And uh, instead, he says, Mark, can you get out of the car? Uh, he said, uh, he said we, need to, we need to talk. And so I, I get out of the car, and uh, he said, then, would you put your hands on your car? And so now things are getting interesting, right? Because, um, I've, like, this is a first for me. I've never encountered this before. And, and so I said, very politely, um, I said, officer, can you please uh, help inform me what's going on right now, right? Like, I, I you know, I'm, there's no alcohol on my breath. If anything, it's Diet Coke and a little morning breath. Like, I'm not, I'm not sure what's going on. And he said, well, sir, there's a warrant out for your arrest. And, and I said, I said, there's a warrant out. For... He said, sir, uh, apparently four or five years ago, you had a $10 parking ticket uh, from St. Louis that you didn't pay for. And, uh, and so my heart softened a little bit, and now I was just going to have fun with this. You know what I'm saying? So I was like, oh, here we go. So he, he handcuffs me, put, puts me literally in the back of the car, okay, uh, so, you know, I, I sit in the back, he's driving me to the station. Hey, so tell me about your life. You know, are you married? Do you have any kids? I mean, I'm, I'm engaging in conversation, you know, and, and we, we end up getting to the station and, uh, I know most of the police, uh, officers here in St. Charles love the police force here. And so they are still like, you know, talking to the uh, police officer, like, what are you doing? Like, this is like, what's going on? You know, like, let him go. And they're like, well, he's like, well, he's got a parking ticket. So anyway, they, they did end up having to take my mugshot and uh, pretty, pretty humbling. I sat next to a guy uh, who was there as well. And, and uh, you know, I, I guess this is the question you ask in that moment. But he said, what are you in for? And... Uh, <laughs> 
And I, I was like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm in for a $10 parking ticket. <laughs> I didn't have the heart to reciprocate the question. Um, but, it, you know, it, it's interesting. I know, that, I know that there's a lot of thoughts about uh, the police, especially in our day and age. Uh, but as for me and my house, I, I, I see them as, a, uh, as an authority. And, and so, like, when he asked me to get out of the car, I, I certainly wasn't going to say no and when I was in the car, like, I wasn't going to say, you need to pull over right now. This is a $10 parking ticket. Like, no, he's, he's in a place of authority. He's a police officer. He has a gun, you know. And, and so I, I submitted to that. Uh, it's interesting, uh, our take on authority. Uh, let me show you guys this, this first slide, and I, I'm going to hope you understand what I mean. Uh, we've all been to a swimming pool before that posts these rules, Okay. And um, whoever posted this uh, list of rules from the pool perspective is posting them because they're desiring to be in a place of authority, okay? My question for you is, how often uh, are these rules followed, okay? I mean, look at this. No, no running, okay? Like, I can't count. If I had a nickel for every time I've heard a parent say in a pool area, stop running, right? Like, like we, we break the rules. No horseplay? Like, come on now. Like, we're playing chicken. I got my kids on my, you know, we're chucking them in as hard as, you know, as high as they can go, almost hitting the hotel ceiling. So, so as submissive as I am to the authority of the police officers, I am like almost the opposite when it comes to pool rules. You know, it's like, yeah, those are nice. They're posted there. But someone posted them there for a reason. Next slide. How about this? Okay, let's. Let's wrestle with this just for a second, um, right? And, and I'm not, again, I'm, I'm not going to, to judge uh, nobody here. Um, some of you guys have heard this as well, but I was uh, traveling home from speaking at a youth conference many, many years ago with a buddy in the passenger seat of my car. We're getting on the on-ramp, and he's literally praying, God, would you please convict Mark of a speeding no lie, 30 seconds later, pulled over. True, 100% true story. Okay, so I, you guys know I'm always moving around. I can tend to go a little bit fast, but, but why would we submit to authority sometimes, but then other times it's like, well, that's a nice suggestion, but actually, like, I'm going to go ahead and discern what this is to be used for. You see what I'm saying? So I don't have a slide for this, but I'd rather just ask you how you feel about this. Um, it's, it's certainly by some guesstimates and understandings and realities uh, authoritative, God's word. But it definitely prompts the question, next slide, that I really want all of us to process through tonight. Does God's word have authority in your life? Again, it's one thing to say that it is authoritative. My question isn't, is it authoritative or not? My question for you is, does it have authority in your life? In all three examples I just gave, we pick and choose. You see what I'm saying? The police I'll be submissive to, the pool rules not so much, speed limit, kind of, right? But tonight, how about God's word? The reason why this is so unbelievably pertinent is the nation of Israel has just beaten AI. And now what's about to happen is the entire nation is going to be asked this question. And they're not just going to be asked it, but there's going to be action that's involved in it. 
So I invite you guys to take this journey with me. Open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 8. We'll finish the chapter tonight. What an amazing uh, journey Joshua has been so far. Last week we just saw 12,000 people in AI die. The nation of Israel, after one defeat, because of Achan's sin, they come back to the place of defeat. And because of God's power, they win. And so now we're going to pick up in verse 30, just after, just after that point in the text. They've just won in AI. Joshua chapter 8, verse 30. Here we go. At that time, this is the instant transition. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, at Mount Ebal. Everyone say Ebal with me. Come on. Ebal. This is an important understanding. Cue the map. I first want to show you where we're talking about here. I've highlighted in a blue square for you AI, and I've also highlighted there in the red square Mount Ebal. I would like all of you to make a similar observation in that we have some distance here. Uh, Let me go ahead and be a little bit more precise. About 20 miles. Okay. So they've just fought in AI, and now the instant reaction is to travel north to Mount Ebal by way of 20 miles. Now, listen, here's what's awesome about the scripture. There's times where you read uh, Mount Ebal, and you're, you feel like you're reading like Google Maps, and oh, that's, that's nice, that's kind of a creative name. But then there's other times where you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That place has tremendous significance. Can I show you how much significance it has? Next slide. Look at this. And you're like, well, that doesn't show us much significance. Um, Mount Ebal is on the right, and a mount that we'll deal with here in just a little bit is on the left, but the city right in between it. Oh, my goodness. Does anyone know which city this is? This, my friends, is a little city called Shechem. Now, for some of you, uh, this won't mean much. For others of you, uh, Shechem all of a sudden like makes you want to jump out of your seat. Because some of you, and all of us now together, are going to remember the significance of Shechem. Cue Genesis 12. Check this out, my friends. Abram, he's not Abraham yet, okay? Passed through the land to the place at where? Come on. Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, look at this, so crazy. To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had, to, uh, who had appeared to them. So the patriarch, listen, the patriarch of the nation of Israel, who God has just called for the very first time. A few verses before this, God calls Abram, I'm going to make your name great. Okay, you're going to be a father to many in so many words. And we see him at Shechem in this place. Okay, next slide. I want to show you how this verse continues in verse 8. From there he moved to the hill country. You'll find this interesting. On the east of where? Bethel. You guys remember Bethel? Okay, that sat just uh, to the west of Ai and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai to the east. Remember this? And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward Negeb. What's insane is now years later, Father Abraham, who had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, one of them, Jacob, resided, resided in Shechem for a minute. And then all of a sudden, we come full circle. And Joshua, as God promised, has now found his way, and not just his way, but the entire nation, 
which we've said many times right now, is anywhere between 1.5 to 2.5 million Jews who have made that trek 20 miles and they wind up, they wind up, my friends, in Shechem on Mount Ebal. Uh, some estimations, uh, next slide, say that this altar that he builds um, has actually been found. This is a picture of an altar that an archaeologist uh, discovered in the mid-80s uh, on, on Mount Ebal. Uh, some, some dating has dated this altar to about 1200 B.C. Where we're at in this story is about 1400 B.C. So we, we can't say for sure whether or not this is the altar, but, but this at least gives us a pretty decent picture of what an altar might have looked like on Mount Ebal. Let me say it one more way. The entire nation of Israel, led by an old man, Joshua, have traveled 20 miles after a battle to worship God. Now that you know the context in Genesis 12, don't you think there were some moments here for Joshua that were not just nostalgic, but crazy powerful as he pictured the patriarch Abraham standing in that exact place and hearing the promises of God? Now, if you're interested thus far, my friends, this story just gets so much more beautiful. Look at verse 31. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. He built an altar there, apparently, as Moses commanded. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed Peace offerings. So they travel 20 miles to sacrifice burnt and peace offerings. But what the scripture says is that they're doing it because Moses, who is now dead, commanded it. So anytime you see in the scripture, as it was said, then like I hope it creates some curiosity and you need to figure out where was it said. Well, thankfully, we have a big screen with big text. Check this out in Deuteronomy 27. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, check this out. This is so awesome. Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan, okay, the nation of Israel has done this. They've crossed over the Jordan, okay, to the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster, which seems a little bit redundant, right? Okay, you could just say we plaster them. Those are the funny anecdotes of the scripture. Verse 3, check this out, okay? Next slide here if you can, verse 3. And you shall write on them all the words of this law. When you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as we've noted many times, okay, this Canaanite land, the land that is the promised land is flowing with milk and honey, Winnie the Pooh would love it, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, verse 4. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today, whoa, 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 on Mount where? Ebor. Do you guys understand what's going on here? They've just fought an AI. Joshua hears this command. And now time, time, like tremendous amounts of time has gone by. And like they fight AI. And all of a sudden this command is ringing in Joshua. Well, hold on a second. Moses told us, commanded from the Lord to us. Like you're going to head to Mount Ebal and you're going to set up some stones with plaster, and you're going to do some things with those stones. 
okay? And you shall plaster them with plaster. Next slide, I want to show you a couple more verses. And there you shall build, check this out, that's right, an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones, okay? You shall wield, whoa, 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 no iron tool on them. Uh, the question is, uh, first of all, what's an iron tool? I'm not very handy, so I'm not sure, okay? But it's, it's some sort of, you know, crafting, carving tool. Why, why, would, uh, why would Moses and ultimately the Lord not want a, an iron-wielding, is that how it's said, tool? Why, why would they not want that? Any thoughts? Yeah, it's man-made, right? So the thoughts is like, we just, we want el natural, right? Like, we want stones on this altar that no man could say, I made that beautiful. Which is an amazing, amazing moment for you and I. The beauty of watching God work in us and then through us is so that we might have a testimony that 1 Corinthians talks about. He chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. Why? So that no man may boast. So that we would never have the opportunity to say, look at the stone that I carved. Look at the person that I saved. Look at the neighbor that I loved on instead. Look at what God has done. Look at God's grace in causing me through his Holy Spirit to pursue that neighbor even though I was really, really fearful. And yet God gave me courage. And God won the day. And so all the way back here, we're seeing this mentality. I don't want any uh, hand, a man, man, man's hands to carve this out. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings. Are any of you seeing this? This is crazy. So now Joshua, listen, time has gone by following this command precisely. You shall uh, sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And finally, verse 8, and you shall write on the stones all of the words of this law very plainly, which is very funny to me. Uh, I have bad handwriting anyway. Anyone else? Bad handwriting? Okay. Okay. Seriously? No one else? Like the three of us think? That's it? No one else has bad hand? Okay. Thank you, Dan. I see that. All right. I know Lonnie has good handwriting seen his handwriting. It's very nice and comforting, right? I, I, I have horrible handwriting. C- could you imagine this command? You're going to write things on stones plainly, okay? I, I wish we had stones and the time tonight to like try that out, right? Here's a chisel tool. Let's see how plain it turns out. But this is the command. Do all of these things plainly. Now, here's what strikes me. There is absolutely, absolutely nothing convenient about this at all. They've just fought an AI. And now they're going to travel. That's right. 1.5 to 2.5 million of them. You think your road trip is bad. Okay. North after battle. And then they're going to travel all together through, as we just saw, hilly, at times somewhat mountainous country. Then they're going to get there. They're going to build. Like there is absolutely nothing. Nothing convenient in this moment about their worship of God. And so it certainly begs the question. Next slide. Let's ask it this way. Is your relationship with God based on convenience? The problem is, if you read the scripture, it's as if relationship with God is often like the polar opposite of anything to do with convenience. And it's not just in this moment in Joshua. It's all throughout the scripture. And so I thought, if you don't mind, that we could just process through a couple questions together that will help you process as I have 
walk through this thought myself. Number one, do you pursue God through the scripture mostly when it is convenient? Now, I have to struggle and wrestle with this. I teach God's word a lot. And so it's convenient for me to study God's word when I'm preparing to teach. Um, God has afforded me opportunities to teach elsewhere from here. And so what could happen when I'm speaking at Spiritual Emphasis Week at Christian High School or a chapel at MOBAP or leading a marriage retreat, like my whole life then could just be preparing to teach. And so then my study of the scripture could be completely convenient for me, if that makes sense. For some of you, you, you read and pursue God through the word only when like all of the stars align and at night when you're not tired, which is never, okay, right? Like have you ever laid down on the pillow? Okay, I know it's, I know it's once in a while, but, but in general, you lay your head on the pillow. It's like sleeping night-night time, right? How many of you are fast sleepers? Like you, you hit the pillow and it's out like a light, okay? The same people who have bad handwriting, praise the Lord. Now listen, <laughs> when, I, when I hit the pillow, it's, it's over, okay? It's over, right? And so, like, that's what I hear. Well, Mark, yeah, I'm going to read the scripture, you know, when, when this happens and when that happens. I just want us all to understand something. Reading and pursuing God through the word is not convenient. But just because it's not convenient, we cannot buy into the American uh, lie that it's not good. Because the American lie says, if it's convenient, then it's good. Think about it. Now, certainly there's some laws that, that go against that in our culture, but, but by and far, if it's convenient, then it's good. But listen, like reading the word is all the time, I believe, through the life of Christ, joyful, but it is rarely, if ever, convenient. We have to wrestle with that question. Next slide. Do you? Pursue God in prayer mostly when it's convenient. Someone's sick, you pray. You need something, you pray. You got a test coming up, you pray. You lose your job, you pray. Meal times, you pray. Listen, I'm, I'm encouraged by praying in those times because um, we're called in Christ to pray without ceasing. But if this is your reality, praying when it's convenient do you understand how much communion with God through Christ you're missing out on? Because it's not every day that someone close to you is really, really sick, or not every day you lose your job. Not every day where all of a sudden you're thrust into a place of need. So my question is, what do you do in the other times? Is there nothing to talk with about God in those times? Because what I have found is the amount of gratitude that I have on a daily basis to the Lord could fill my prayer life, let alone anything else. The amount of his grace, the amount of his love, the amount of, of his mercy that he's extended, the amount of his blessing that I've even yet at times to see can fill hours and hours and days and days of communion with him, let alone any of my requests. But I feel like some of us feel like we're like, we're punching the check card with God in prayer, right? All right, God, I need something, you know? And you clock in. A couple minutes later, you clock out so that later when God, you feel like in your mind is coming at you, hey, you never pray. Whatever, God, look at my time sheet. You know, like I put in three minutes and 30 seconds earlier today. Ivan was listening to some worship while I was throwing down, so that doubles that. Let's call it seven, right? 
But listen, when our prayer life is dominated by convenience, we're missing out so much. When Joshua all of a sudden would be sparked in his mind, no, no, we need to head 20 miles north. I know we've just fought a battle, but we're, it's time to build an altar, so let's go. And just so you know, traveling 20 miles with 1.5 to 2.5 million people is going to take a minute. How about this last question? Do you pursue the worship of God mostly when it's convenient? I feel like uh, in recent years, we've learned a lot here about the worship of God in difficult times. One of my favorite songs that uh, Brandon has ever written is, is a song called Pains You Gave. And it, the very premise of it is that like somehow there are these cherished gifts that God gives us at times in suffering. But if the worship of God, as we've been learning about here recently, only happens when there's music playing, or if the worship of God is only happening when you feel like there's reason to be excited about something, when the worship of God is, is only happening when all things seem like they're going well, we are missing, missing so much of the opportunity to worship him. So what happens when you step back from these three things? Is it possible that some of you are misguided into thinking that you have relationship with God at all? I've taught it here many times. I want to go into it a little bit more in depth now. If we go by the standards of the Christianity around us and say that that is the bar of what it means to be a follower of Christ, I just want all of us to be on the same page. What America and the kind of Christianity that it's selling is not the biblical following Christ, my friends, at all. It's a consumeristic, built-on-you-and-your-preferences kind of Christianity. It's a you-can-follow-Christ-when-it's-needed, when everything is lined up. It's that kind of Christianity. But the Scripture offers a beautiful, more joyful way. And that way is, there is not one word in the Scripture, including the Greek and even the Hebrew, that has anything to do with, hey, listen, you come to Christ and then your life is built on convenience. And so I know some of us are even balking at like, why would they 20, 20 miles? Like, are you kidding me? Right. And, and we struggle at times. I'm not even talking about coming here on a Wednesday night, but think about all the, all the times we have to worship the Lord. We're like, ah, you know, I'll, I'll get to that tomorrow. Right. But if you read the whole entirety of the scripture, you will be enamored, enamored with the call on God's people to run from convenience and enjoy the journey there within. So please, my friends, don't give in to the lie that this isn't beautiful. Because for the nation of Israel, this, I believe, is one of their most beautiful journeys ever. Preparing to celebrate what God has done. So verse 32 after the journey, look at this, this is crazy. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Now, let me try to help you understand the pressure, okay? Because look at this, and there in the presence of who? Of the what? Come on, of what? The people. Everybody's watching him, okay? Have you ever been with some, uh, some folks that you know very well? And they ask you to do an impersonation on the spot, and you don't like the pressure, right? Like you were just doing it like three minutes ago. Hey, could you do that impersonation, right? And you're like, I, you know, because the pressure gets to you, right? 
Um, one of my impersonations uh, is uh, I do a pretty good Bruce Willis face. And, um, and so my wife at times, mostly to make fun of me because she doesn't feel like I actually can do a Bruce Willis face. Um, she'll like, hey, Mark, like, do, your, do your Bruce Willis face, you know? And, and as like loud and obnoxious as I am generally, like I kind of ball up a little bit in the pressure, right? And I, I can't pull it off. Uh, so later, if you want to see it, though, just come and ask me and I'll, I'll show you guys. <laughs> so imagine like everybody's watching Joshua. And again, this isn't like carry some stones. They're watching him etch the law into stones. Okay. Now, first of all, some of you might think this would be more boring than watching paint dry. Like, like this isn't an easy process. I'm with you to, to understand how not easy the process is. Let's ask a couple questions. First of all, what did he write? If he's writing the law of Moses, your first thought is, whoa, 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 whoa. Is that like, like maybe the whole book of Deuteronomy? Right? We're like, we're gonna need, we're gonna need a whole lot of stones here, right? Like, are you like, what, what is this? There's, a, there's some commentators that believe that. Uh, I'm not in that camp, mostly because of practicality here, okay? To etch out the entire, you know, book of Deuteronomy in stones. I mean, this would have taken years, okay? Especially for Joshua. He's seasoned and old, okay? It's like, he needs glasses. It's going to take him a minute, right? But, but not just that. I, I believe that, that the most likely uh, stone carving here uh, are, in fact, the Ten Commandments, And then we're going to see some blessings and curses that are read from Deuteronomy 27 and 28 here in just a little bit. I believe what he etches here is the law, the the premise that God provides in Exodus 20, that this is what you are to follow. Now, if that is what is written there, okay, and I'm going to leave that open a little bit for interpretation. If that is what's written there, the question is why? Why this command? Why now? Especially because, like, there's more conquest to be had. Listen, there's more land to take. And if you've read ahead in Joshua, there's more battles coming. So this seems like an odd interjection. Hey, listen, Joshua, travel 20 miles, etch some things in stones. Why? Why this? Why now? Next slide. I believe it's because of this. The Old Covenant. Now, this is a familiar term to some of you, not familiar to the rest of you. And so what I've done is I've asked our very, very wise Pastor Jared to help me define the old covenant in a sentence. Okay, And this is what Pastor Jared said. God graciously gave Israel his law so that through living according to it in relationship to him, they would be his light to the nations. So the old covenant is the giving of the law and then the promise, even that we'll see here shortly, that in the obedience of that law that there would be blessing. We could say it this way. God tells his people, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Well, if you know this about the old covenant, the question is then, how did the nation of Israel do with this? The whole Old Testament is packed with the reality of exactly how they do, not great, okay? They they struggle. They can't obey as, as clear as things are, as precise as God's word is. 
They continually disobey, continually go their own way, continually worship idols. So why after the battle of Ai, in light of the old covenant, would Joshua by Moses through God be called to etch the law in stones? Why? Because in this moment, the nation of Israel is going to come together and rally again around the authority of God's word. Guess what? That's what we do every single time we gather. We rally around the authority of God and his word. Because let's just agree, if God's word isn't authoritative, why are you here? If you're not a believer, I can understand. You're curious. You want to grow. You want to learn. You're interested. You were brought by a friend. That makes sense. But for the believer, if God's word isn't authoritative... If God's word isn't, as Hebrews 4 says, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, then why in the world would we gather? This begins to set us up for the problem. The nation of Israel gathers right here on Mount Ebal to reaffirm the authority of God's word. And so everything that is happening, the lack of convenience, the chiseling out, is all set up so that everyone who's standing around could yet again say God's word is authoritative. And so, verse 33, this happens. And all of Israel. Whoa, what's the, word? What's the next word? Hold on a second. Sojourner. Well, what does sojourner mean? Come on. Come on, hipster in the room. Like, what does sojourner mean? What? Foreigners, not local. Okay, well, we know we at least got one sojourner and that sojourner's family up in here. And who's that? Rahab, remember? Okay, so we at least picked up Rahab and Jericho. But now the only thought is that there must be some other Canaanites that have heard God's word and that are willing to submit to, to, to the authority of it as well. And so in all of Israel, sojourner as well as native born with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest, this is beautiful, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of, in front of Mount what? Come on. Ebal. Okay, so I'm going to name your sons that. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. The intention here is blessing. Let's paint the picture. Next slide. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 27, Moses lays out which sides of the mount the 12 tribes of Israel are to stand. And so Mount Gerizim is on the left. Mount Ebal is on the right. The Ark of the Covenant is in the middle. For those of you that know something about acoustics, these two mounts on both sides of the valley would create a very natural amphitheater. And so I, just, I want you to picture as best you can, minus the, the you know, 20th century buildings here, picture 1.5 to 2.5 million people, some on the left, some on the right, the priests, the Ark of the Covenant, and all of a sudden some proclamation in this natural amphitheater of the people 
of God. Do you think anyone was wondering what they were doing at this point? I'm just thinking practically. Think about what you've seen so far as just, you know, random person in the nation of Israel. You've walked across the river, right? You've marched around Jericho. You've seen two armies fall. And then Joshua says, hey, we're, we're going up and we're going to hang out between two mountains, right? Like, like, don't you think there would be a little bit in you that's like, hey, we need to defend ourselves here. Like, word's getting out that we're pretty powerful and, and this battle is going to go awry. Like, I, I kind of feel vulnerable. But instead, we have this picture of everyone listening, everyone attentively hearing. And look at what verse 34 says. And so afterward... After this reading, the chiseling, he then read all the words of the law. Oh, hold on. The blessing and the curse according to all that is written in the book of the law. Well, what happens in Deuteronomy 31, real quick, we find out that every seven years, Moses instructs the nation of Israel to read this out loud for the whole nation. But but what we see in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 are some blessings and curses to make sure the nation of Israel understands what it means to disobey and obey. I just want to show you a couple. You can look at some later for your own reference. Here's two from Deuteronomy 27. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Okay, thank you. Verse 16. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say. Now, in Deuteronomy 27, and now here again, it paints an amazing picture of what I think we struggle with a ton. Powerful text. Like, we're not going to dishonor our parents. And all the people of God, you know, we resound. Amen, so be it. We agree. And then walk out the door. And we don't agree anymore. Yes, hey, listen, never ever cast or make a false idol or an image that would be dishonoring to the Lord. And all of God's people resoundly said, amen, yes, praise the Lord. We're even wearing our Jesus shirts. It's all good. And then we walk out the door. So imagine, A, the power of agreeing in the Lord. But in particular, when the Holy Spirit guides the people of God to actually follow the Lord. In other words, it's one thing to say amen, and it's a whole other thing to live amen. Are we together? And so there's a whole list in Deuteronomy 27, okay? You can tat it all over your left arm later if you'd like, right? But on the other side, there's blessings. Now, we don't, we don't have an image that, uh, that Joshua carved these. We just see that he read them. But just for an example, here's how Deuteronomy 28 opens. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will then set you high above all the nations of the earth. So imagine the curses and the blessings in the natural amphitheater that is between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and they're all sharing and hearing this and saying amen together. And then the powerful end of chapter 8, verse 35. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. He followed the commands of the late Moses to a T. And the women 
and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. This was an inclusive, authoritative of God structure and insanely beautiful. And so I sat back from this and I cannot wait to share this with you. I had to, as you're going to have to, wrestle with some very difficult things. And it all starts here. Next slide. If we, if we believe that there is an old covenant, uh, the natural linguistics would say if you're reading a book that discusses an old covenant, that means there's probably a what? Next slide. There's probably a also new covenant. So we've defined old covenant... I thought, if you don't mind, we could let the text, the scripture, God's authoritative word, tell us a little bit about the new covenant. Hello, somebody. Feel free to jump out your seat. And every priest, earlier than the text that Jared read earlier, and every priest stands daily at a service, every priest in the nation of Israel, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So in talking about the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, the writer of Hebrews begins With the way that sin was dealt with in the old covenant is the priest had to make continual sacrifice over and over and over. And still, he says, could not take away sins. Verse 12, but hello, when Christ had offered for all, okay, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So something happens between the old covenant and the new covenant that all of these hundreds and thousands and millions even of sacrifices are then taken care of in one sacrifice of Christ, his own sacrifice. Waiting, verse 13, I love this language, that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, which will happen, next slide, in verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let me tell you what that means. Anyone who's in Christ seen through the eyes of God as holy. And the only way we can be in relationship with God is if we're seen as and are holy. And the only way that happens is through Christ. Uh, do you guys remember what, was, what we just read in Deuteronomy? And if they obey... Matthew chapter 5 says that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. He comes and obeys for us. Becomes righteousness for us. Look at how this text continues. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make uh, with them uh, after those days, declares the Lord. Hello, look at this. I will put my laws on their what? Woo! No longer on stones. Guess what? The new covenant takes the stones and writes the law of God on our hearts and write them on their minds so that, verse 17, this is awesome, beautiful text, next slide. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So the power of the new covenant is that one sacrifice in Christ because of his obedience fulfilling all of the law and the prophets in himself. Then when he dies, and then when he raises from the dead, anyone who joins to God through Christ, now forgiveness of sins and all the lawless deeds that you and I have committed are, Scripture says, no more. So the Old Covenant and the New Covenant um, have some differences 
both beautiful in their own right. If you want some more information on it, please uh, check out uh, the book of Hebrews, which is all about the Old and the New Covenant. But there's still one question. Next slide. There's one thing we have to wrestle with. The New Covenant means nothing when we read about it in Hebrews 10 unless God's word is authoritative. You guys understand? Here's what I'm wondering. Does God's word just stir us like a good lyric? Right? We read Hebrews 10 and there's something in us emotionally. Sometimes only emotionally. There's something that looks at that and I was like, Stirs us up a little bit, riles us up a little bit, causes the heart to beat fast a little bit. Just because God's word moves us, it doesn't mean that in our life it's authoritative. Are we together? What I found in my life, and this is what I've had to wrestle with and I told the guys earlier, I've been unbelievably convicted by all of these things that I'm now sharing. My own wrestling has been the authoritative word of God in my life looks completely different than merely being moved by it. And I've started to step back and look at our culture, our church, and I'm wondering, are we really holistically submissive to a word that is living and active and authoritative, or are we just cheerleaders? Do we just cheer it on? Way to go, God. That was a good word, Lord. But then there's no life change. There's nothing that's actually intrinsically happening in us. And if you're like me, I'm just longing for consistency in my life. Anyone else? So I think the first step is just by identifying where you're at. And so I'd like to provide some identifiers, if you don't mind. Next slide. Views on the authority of Scripture. Number one, zero power, zero authority. Some of you in this room believe that about God's word. It has zero power, and it has zero authority. If you're in that category, you're certainly not a follower of God, and I say it all the time here, I'll say it again. I'm so thankful that you're here. Thank you. By putting up category number one, it isn't a means of condemnation towards you at all. It's just a means of calling it what it is. Every single person in this room was born into this reality. God's word is nothing. It's a nice story, maybe a slight fairy tale. You know, they've made some decent movies about it, but it's zero power, zero authority. A lot of you, number two, are in this category, maybe, but life goes on without it. Listen, our lives are showing that we can live without God's word. If you're in category number two, this is your struggle. I don't need it to live. You see, Jesus said, man, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the folks in this category are, man lives pretty much by bread alone. And every once in a while, a little, you know, a little salted seasoning from God's word. So maybe, maybe it has power, maybe it has authority. But I don't really need it to live. And listen, we don't have to like get super scientific with it. Our lives show what we need to live, right? Just take today for example, right? What would my life show that I needed to live? Well, number one, a quick trip long, John, okay? Because that's what I started my day with, right? Okay, and praise the Lord for them, right? Come on, the chocolate long, John. Anyone else? No, okay, right? But then as I look through my day, what would my life say I can't live without? 
And you start wrestling with this. Well, I can't live without working because I need to provide. I, 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 can't live, I can't live without Facebook. I'm sure that's no one's deal. I, I, I can't live without communication. I can't live without my vehicle. I, you, you name the things that you can't live without. My question today is, would your life say, I cannot live, survive, breathe without the word of God? I can't do it. And you look at your life on display today, and it would be so clear. First of all, where is the scripture written, my friends? On our what? In Christ, on our what? On our hearts. It's right there. The Holy Spirit in us, residing in us, providing complete access to God's word. And our lives say, yeah, maybe it has some power, but in all reality, I'm going to be just fine without it. I mean, I'll come back to it when it's convenient. The third category is the most difficult. Number three. Mm. The reason why I say it's the most difficult, because I know for some of you, this is potentially the moment where God opens your eyes to some very heavy things going on in your life. You see, pick and choose authority says, I, I am going to read God's word. And what I'm going to do is I am going to turn my eyes away from certain things that because of my life situation feel impossible. And maybe they don't feel impossible. Maybe it's just I don't want to see them. Maybe it's just, I don't want to follow him. Maybe it's, maybe it's that one is not for me. The problem with the pick and choose mentality is there's enough on the pick side that it's providing the idea in your mind that you're being submissive to God's word. In other words, you're loving, being generous. Your, your heart's flooded with mercy for others. And so there's obedience here. But then there's a few others on this side where you're like, I, I, no, absolutely not, God. I will give you these things. These things make me feel good. Or I just enjoy obeying you in these things. But this, no. It's going to cost too much. The sacrifice is too great. And quite honestly, I just don't want to do it. Do you understand what I've come to understand? What happens when the world sees a pick and choose authority approach from the church is then they start to question the one that we're saying is in authority. You people say he's in authority. And yet you look at this, what, what it's supposed to be, the authoritative word, and you people pick and choose what you follow. So that must mean then the world would say that he really isn't authoritative. Now you start wrestling with that a little bit. Listen, does that mean we're perfect? Oh my goodness, no. And that isn't the call. It's just when we come to blatant moments of I will not listen, even though your word is clear. The world gets very, very confused about the authority of God. And if there's one thing I want the world to know, it's that he's in authority. 
Why? Because they placed themselves there just like I did. Are you guys with me? And so I know some of you are realizing what I've realized in my life. Listen, it doesn't matter what you feel about sex before marriage in your heart. Read the word. It doesn't matter what you feel about your dating relationships. Read the word. It doesn't matter what you feel in your heart about abuse or alcohol or relationships or forgiveness or gossip. Those in Christ, it doesn't matter what you feel. You lay those feelings down and you say, God, what do you say? What does your word say? The reason why the whole nation of Israel comes to this valley in this natural amphitheater is to say again, your word is authoritative. It means something. And so we're going to refresh our memories again on what it is you've called us to do. The fourth category is certainly a beautiful one. Where it takes me, I long to follow. God, you say, whatever you call, whatever you... Now, I know what many of you are thinking. You've gotten to places where interpretation of Scripture can be a little bit, it seems, loose. One of the greatest Christian games is by saying, well, does that really mean that? When God said that we're to forgive 70 times 7, you think he really meant that? Because really, when you look at the original context and blah, 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 right? We like justify our way out of it. Now, I'm all for discussing the scripture and understanding what God is communicating to us, but I'm telling you, the justification ends in the authority of God. So, the question is, what do we do then? Um, Some of you guys have heard of a, a book of prayers that the Puritans prayed called the Valley of Vision. And I love reading the book because they, they pray in such a way that um, stirs my own prayer life. And I didn't get this prayer out of the Valley of Vision, um, but I felt like what many of us would need right now is the action step of maybe even knowing what to pray. Because the action right now isn't, all right, guys, and you know, you sleep on your Bible and hoping that by osmosis you wake up with a deeper appreciation for it. That's not what we're talking about. What if tonight the action step for all of us, no matter what category you find yourself in, is pray? And for those of you that walked in here not believing the authority of God at all, I'm just saying tonight you can come to him and the power of the new covenant can be yours, your sins washed clean by the blood of the lamb. So I think here's the action prayer for us. God, first, thank you for providing your word. How often do you thank him for it, my friends? How often do you say, I don't deserve to have your scripture? Uh, do you know what the, the Israelites had and what you have? The Israelites were looking at the old covenant on stones, and you're holding in your hand the perspective of the old and the new covenant. God, thank you for providing your word. Please forgive me for treating it carelessly. And the heart of that plea is, please forgive me, God, for the times where I have lessened your authority down to a speed limit sign. God, forgive me for the times 
that I've grabbed your word and I've grabbed something out of it when it's convenient for me and then other days I just turn my, God, forgive me for taking not just your word but you carelessly. Make me a student of your word like never before. Is that some of your pleas? God, make me a student. God, give me a hunger. Guide me to submit to your word even when it is not convenient or comfortable. God, through your Holy Spirit, guide us. Guide us to a place of submission even when our flesh says gossip. Even when our flesh says judge, even when our flesh says turn our back, even when our flesh says indulge, even when our flesh says, listen, right now, give in to this abuse or this addiction because you need it. God, help me fearlessly submit to you even when it's not convenient or comfortable. Help me believe that your word, hello, is truly living and active. Help me believe it. God, there's been days where I've read it and it seems two-dimensional. Help me believe that it's 3D. And by your Holy Spirit, cause my life to reflect its truth. Here's what I'm asking, church. Would you be willing tonight to pray this? Could God do such a work at Matthias' lot as one body that we would become so interested and engaged in the authority of God through his word that we would actually live like we believe it's authoritative? Well, if you're like me, ask for me in my house. I need tonight forgiveness. I need tonight the reminder of the power of my sins washed clean by the blood of the lamb. And so guess what we're going to share in tonight? In light of our failings, a celebration of the new covenant. As Jesus was getting ready to perfectly fulfill the new covenant with his disciples, he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. You take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And then he held up the cup. Now now imagine this, imagine this. Think of how much sacrifice had been made to this point. How many lambs were killed, how much blood had been spilt. And Jesus holds up the cup and says, this is the blood of the what? Come on, of the new covenant the once-for-all sacrifice. And it's going to be me on the cross, and my blood's the thing that's going to be spilt. And he says, you take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. Listen, church, I'm just saying, we have at times made a mockery of the authority of God by making a mockery of the Scripture. And it's time tonight to receive his grace and forgiveness and pray in power. And so tonight, this is going to sit up here for a little bit. We're going to have an opportunity to respond and celebrate the new covenant and his grace. But I'm telling you, my friends, we have no idea what can happen in this body if we submit together to the authoritative word of God. So let's receive his grace through the new covenant, partake in the celebration, and respond together in worship.